and welcome back to Millennial Ag, where agriculture is always on tap and no topic is off limits. Thanks for joining us today, your co-hosts, Valine Likely and Catherine Lotspeech. Listeners, you are listening to the third episode in our series on mental health, and this week we are delighted to bring to you a mental health professional, Dr. Nora Feldposh, who is a psychiatrist, a dairy farmer, and a mom. Nora, would you like to give us a little bit more of your background? Sure. So I actually... Um, um, did my medical school and residency back in Michigan. At that time, I had already met and married my husband, who's a third generation dairy farmer. And so I was kind of trying to figure out how to put together a medical background with an ag background and ended up in psychiatry. So pretty much I um, am a physician who specializes in um, illnesses that affect the way people think and feel. I'm also a mom of four and uh, we have uh, dairy in a feed yard out here in Colorado. So I also, I think, get a little bit of the understanding of the stress that goes along with all the things that people in rural areas juggle when they're talking about stress and mental health and the impact that, that that has on their physical health as well. Well, thank you for being here. We're super excited to have you as a professional here to discuss some of um, issues and explain to listeners kind of what mental health is, but also your rural background and a mom and being right in the thick of everything agriculture on a daily basis, even if they're not your primary um, clients all the time. So thank you for being here. And I think we'll just dive right in. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks for having the courage to bring this topic up, because I think one of the biggest things that we'll probably get to here is how much stigma there still is surrounding mental illness and getting help for mental illness and how uncomfortable people are sometimes talking about it and getting help for themselves or for other people. So I just really appreciate you guys having the courage to stick your necks out a little bit and say, hey, let's let's talk about this. Let's figure out what's going on. Well, thank you. We appreciate that too, because it it's still scary. <laughs> it is for sure. For okay. sure. And I just a little bit more about my background that I didn't include. I, I am specialized in college mental health. So I was at CSU for almost eight years. And now I work um, doing telehealth for Michigan State University. So I tend to get exposure to younger folks, typically. Um, but also I hear a lot about their families. And since the, both of those schools have big ag components in them, I hear a lot about what's going on at home for, for uh, folks in that age group, too. Very good. You you are the perfect guest. We're so glad to have you on. Thank you. So let's start out with some t- statistics, Nora. Um, how many people suffer from some sort of mental health-related issue in their lifetime? So a lot. This is an incredibly <laughs> common illness. I think the World Health or- Organization estimates that depression is the number one leading cause of morbidity and mortality. So both death and, um, and uh, lost productivity and illness in the world. So it's extremely common. Um, About 20% or so, maybe a little bit less, a little bit more, depending on where in the country you are, what the particular situation is going on in your area. But about one in five people will either suffer from uh, mental health uh, or mental illness challenges themselves or someone they know or love well. Then we're talking specifically about depression. The statistics are a little bit less for um, some of the more, um, some of the different mental illnesses like um, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. Um, The prevalence of those is is a bit lower. Anxiety is also really, really common and anxiety disorders. Well, I just hearing those statistics makes, brings it to reality that I think there's a lot more people surrounding me on a daily basis that have experienced some kind of 
of mental illness on some level. And I think we all need to be aware personally about mental health and the implications of it. And we had talked earlier about um, just the stigma behind that. And I think bringing statistics up is a great way to kind of start breaking down that barrier. But what, what, what have you seen as the stigma in agriculture and in mental health? And how do well, we start think, normalizing it? Yeah, you know, I think it's similar to many other areas of the country, but I also think ag people are tough folks, right? They're used to being out there doing things on their own, often are in family businesses, often persevere through drought and hailstorms and illnesses, and they get up and they still take care of their animals and they still do their work. So I think there's this really sense of perseverance and strength that I think is good in terms of giving, giving people resilience but also can get in their way when it comes to asking for help. And I think one of the biggest things that I try to talk with folks about is um, mental illness, depression, and anxiety. They're not the same thing as feeling stressed out. It is not the same thing as being sad that all of us, of course, go through stress and go through times of anxiety and go through times that are difficult and work hard to pick ourselves up and get through that. But when that, when depression goes from I'm feeling sad to an illness is when it starts to actually change your brain biochemistry and you get to the point where you can't do the things you normally would do. And so a lot of times people come into me and say, I'm lazy or, you know, I'm just, I'm not, and it feels like that, but in the same way that, you know, someone who has a broken leg is not lazy because they're not walking. Someone whose brain chemistry isn't working quite right is not lazy because they're having the symptoms of that. So, you know, symptoms of depression can, can be anywhere from feeling sad all the time, not just, you know, my dog died, so I feel sad, or I lost somebody in my life, so I feel sad, but more just every day, day in and day out, not feeling hopeful, not feeling like you're looking forward to the day, not feeling like you have the energy to do the things that you used to do, not wanting to reach out and make connections like you used to, not enjoying things like you used to. When that goes on for a couple of weeks and doesn't get better, that suggests there's something bigger going on than just plain sadness or just plain stress. Um, so, and, you know, we had talked a little bit earlier about this is really a biological illness. And I think sometimes there is this stigma that somehow other illnesses that aren't contained in your brain are real, but illnesses that affect the biochemistry of your brain are somehow not real. It doesn't make much sense to me as a psychiatrist because it's like, well, I've seen brains. I've held a brain in my hand. I've looked at fMRI structures. I know what they look like and what they do. And they are very organic. They are very much made up of tiny little cells and neuro, uh, you know, neurochemistry and neurotransmitters and all these kinds of things. Um, it's easier when you look at somebody who's has, say, a broken arm. I mean, you can do an x-ray quickly and see that's oh, very obvious that arm is broken. We're never going to tell a person walking around with a broken arm, just like, buck it up, you know, like, <laughs> I can lift this thing. Why aren't you lifting this thing? What's wrong with you? But we do that all the time with folks whose brains are not working quite like they should. The fact is that we are now sophisticated enough. We do this more so in research than in everyday life. So it's not like you can go into your doctor's office and ask for a functional MRI scan. But if you did and you were struggling with depression or anxiety, your brain fundamentally looks different. It looks like someone with depression. And we can put it up against thousands of other brains of folks who have very similar symptoms. Um, and they will all look like folks with depression. The computer can pick them out. 
um, the, the computer can pick out folks that are struggling not with stress necessarily, but with stress that has led to an anxiety disorder where they're not functioning anymore and where their brain is starting to tell them things that aren't true anymore, like the whole world is a terrible place, the whole world is very scary. Um, so that, that's, I think, something that we really have to keep in mind is that these are real biological illnesses. We can see them in functional MRI scanners. We also can see when they get better, incidentally. So when people treat their mental illness, we can see their brains normalize in a functional MRI scanner and look more like their brain did before they got treatment. So I think that's part of the stigma is that because it's, it affects behavior and it affects thinking, somehow it feels like it's not based in biology in the same way that, you know, someone who has a broken arm or broken leg um, has an illness that, that's based in biology. So I think, you know, I, I definitely see that. I definitely hear of people who are ashamed of their symptoms. I definitely hear of people who think it makes them weak or that who thinks that, who, who think that, and, and in fact, I would say if you are struggling with, um, with depression, with anxiety, with a mental health problem, and you have the courage to come forth and tell somebody about that, to me, that takes a phenomenal amount of strength, actually, and a phenomenal amount of resilience. But they often don't see that that way. They often feel like they're going to be judged or they're going to be seen as not able to take care of themselves or not able to be resilient. Um, and um, I can tell you that these things are treatable, and that's just not the case. I think the other thing that stigma often does is it keeps people from getting treatment for a really long time. And, you know, these illnesses are very treatable and it always kind of breaks my heart when I talk with someone who's been experiencing really severe symptoms for months or even years and has never talked to anybody about it, has never tried to figure out if there's some, some way that that could get better, that they could get that treated. Um, and, you know, it, it, often I'll get the feedback when we start working together and we get them connected with folks that can help them feel better. You know, why didn't I do this earlier? You know, all of a sudden I, I can get my life back and they'll go for, you know, months and months. I mean, to, to, to be diagnosed with depression, the length of time that you have to have significant symptoms is two weeks. So two weeks of feeling hopeless, overwhelmed, low energy, low motivation, changes in sleep, changes in appetite. If that's persistently going on, for any extended period of time, it's probably worth at least asking your doctor about what might be going on and maybe getting some help and some support. And is depression um, always like trauma driven or is it biological or is, can it, how is it driven? Cause I know there's a lot of stigma about like, well, you have to have trauma to experience depression or you have to have something crazy happen. Yeah. So I would say a couple of things about that. I would say that, no, this is a biologically inherited illness for many people. Um, and so for some folks, um, even just a little bit of adversity or a little, little bit of difficulty can trigger the biological illness that happens. And, and that tends to run in families for other folks can get through trauma and don't ever suffer from depression. And some folks have trauma compound their depression or compound their ability to get help for depression. So um, trauma is sort of like, um, it's kind of like diabetes. If you have diabetes and you have trouble controlling diet, controlling exercise and controlling weight, you may be more likely to end up needing insulin or needing treatment for di diabetes than someone who doesn't. However, you can also develop diabetes even if you're exercising and eating well, but it happens to run in your family. So that's the case with depression as well. And I think we have to be careful when we talk about trauma because sometimes we can get very judgy with ourselves and with other people about what is trauma. For one person, trauma might be, my parents got a divorce when I was at a really sensitive age 
and I carried a lot of that, a lot of the, the shame around that and a lot of the fear around that and a lot of the, the um, unpredictability about that in, in my mind, kind of in my heart. And that could be a trauma that could be significant enough to trigger depression. Um, for other folks, it can be um, a brain that is um, really pre-wired to be very anxious. And so even little things, little separations, little difficulties in their life, if you start to think about them in the way that an anxious brain does, can compound them and make them traumatic. So, you know, trauma is relative. It's relative to each person. And the fact is that whatever causes the symptoms of depression or anxiety, if the way you're thinking or the way you're feeling is getting in the way of you being able to do the things you want to do and be the person that you want to be, then you don't necessarily have to go back and find out a reason why this happened in order to justify your experience. Your experience is there no matter what caused it. And we can actually treat it not even knowing what caused it. Sometimes it is useful to go back and kind of pick apart what your experiences have been and how you've interpreted them in your life. And that can be helpful on a larger scale. But you don't necessarily have to even know why you're feeling that way to be feeling that way and to fit the criteria for depression. And we can still treat it. It's kind of like a broken arm. It's nice to know why you broke your arm so you don't do it the next time around. But <laughs> if you did, you can still treat it even not, know, not knowing why your arm is broken. Right. I'm so glad that you've laid that out for us because all of those things that you said ring true for agriculture, you know, um, not being able to take care of yourself or, or, you know, a loss of perceived independence or, you know, that you're weak or struggling or something like that. Um, and, and the trauma is very individualized um, and, and brain chemistry driven as well. I think that those are really, really important things to note and and to put out into the world because that truly is how it is um i mean i have a brain that's wired for anxiety <laughs> and it's it's not fun but that's just how it is and so knowing that there is help um and that there are ways to to mitigate it and 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 to be well um it was life-changing for me mm -hmm. well and i think also to understand that anxiety in and of itself is not only really common, it's really important, right? Because anxiety is what keeps us from stepping in front of traffic. It's what keeps us from stepping in with a bull. You know what I mean? When you see that, so the problem, so anxiety has been selected for over time really intensely. It's a very, very ancient part of our brain that drives our anxiety. And it, you know, when you talk about like fight, flight or freeze, that's present in like lizards. I mean, that is an extremely ancient part of our brain that is very, very hard for us to combat if it's wired to be very jumpy. I mean, if you, and you know this from working with animals, right? I mean, some animals, if you work with horses, um, they're wired differently and they have a different way of perceiving what's around them. So instead of getting mad at the horse that's anxious and saying, what's wrong with you? This horse in the stall next to you is not anxious. Instead, if you say, okay, let's figure out how your brain works and let's work to train you to live with the brain that you've got, rather than getting mad that you got given whatever, you know, whatever you got given. Um, and yeah, anxiety on many levels is very protective. The problem is when your brain runs away with you and you don't recognize what's actually dangerous and what isn't. I kind of, I, I tell my patients anxiety is a bit like having a fire alarm that keeps going off every time someone puts a, a pot on the stove. Yeah. You know? So you kind of have to, but you have to train yourself to look and be like, that is a pot. That is not a fire. You know, like take it down, like heart, you can slow down a little bit now. You know what I mean? And, and to kind of think your way through that. Um, but it's, it's, it's often not helpful, even though we all get mad at ourselves and we get mad at others for, you know, it's a pot. Why is your stupid fire alarm going off? It's just a pot. 
Um, but the fact is that if you're wired that way, you can't keep the alarm from going off, but you can change how you respond to it. And you can recognize that sometimes your brain goes haywire when it shouldn't or thinks something really dangerous is going to happen when it's not. That's a great analogy and something that I love those simple things that we don't think about. And it's like putting on different lenses and seeing situations from different points of view, like the way I operate is different than the way Catherine operates, which is different than how you operate. And we all respond so differently to different situations just because of our brain chemistry. Right, exactly. And the thing that's so cool, I think about brains, and I think we've we've chatted about this before, um, was that, is that every time you think, you change your brain chemistry, Mm -hmm. which is really cool if you think about it. I mean, even just having this conversation, the memory of this conversation is stored in your brain. I mean, it's it's a change in your brain chemistry. So on, on some level, that gives me a lot of hope because, and it also makes um, treating men- mental illness really more interesting, but also much more complicated than other things. Um, because every time you think, you end up changing your brain chemistry. So when you're working with someone who's helping you to figure out how to normalize your brain chemistry, they have to be able to work with you and teaching you how to recognize and think about how you think, um, which is different than pretty much any other organ in the body. I mean, you can't um, change the way you think and heal your broken arm better. Right. Um, but you can change the way that you think and heal your brain that's struggling with depression better um, or more effectively. I think that is such a sign of hope. I mean, you... I mean, there are definitely instances and cases and needs for, um, you know, medical intervention. Absolutely, definitely. But that you yourself have some power, you know, with the help of a psychologist or a therapist or a psychiatrist to be able to to heal your brain and feel better, I think is just wildly, wildly important. I agree. I agree. And I think the thing that we have to remember, too, is that it's it's all the pieces have to come together. So you really need to work with a team of people who you trust, who have a good medical background, a good background in psychology or counseling, so that they can say, okay, in the case of your particular brain in the way that we know know it functions, maybe you do need medication along with the training your brain to think differently. Maybe you don't. And we have all sorts of parameters for how we um, help each person. I think one of the things that sometimes gets in the way with is the stigma towards coming to a provider and worrying that if I tell somebody what's going on, they're just going to want to medicate me. And they're just going to want to like, they're going to try to change my personality with drugs, which we can't change people's personalities with drugs. Thank goodness. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, that's, and that's, you know, that is very important that there, it absolutely is a place for medication in some of these illnesses for some people but not in the absence of also learning how your brain works, how you live with the brain that you've been given, how you train yourself differently, how do you recognize how the way you're thinking is impacting how you're feeling. So all these things have to work together in one integrated sort of group to be able to successfully treat these illnesses. But the other thing that I think that I try to remind patients of as well is not to believe everything you think. And I think that can sometimes be really difficult, right? Because it's very, very hard to tell a brain that thinks that something extremely dangerous is about to happen, that they're fine. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if you just believe that the world is an incredibly dangerous place and at any moment I'm about to be eaten by something, you're not going to ever get any better. You have to come to the point where you recognize that my brain is telling me something that's not actually true. And I have to step beyond that and have someone help me go back and look at what is actually true, what is not true. Depression does this tremendously, right? Depression 
often makes us feel like we're not worth anything. Mm -hmm. Like we, the world would be better off without us. Like our loved ones would be better off without us. And nothing can be further from the truth. I mean, I have worked with families, you know, before, during, after suicides. And I will tell you, nothing could be further from the truth. This world is never better off without uh, any individual person in the world. And a family is never better off without an individual person in the world. But the illness makes them start to believe that. And that's one of the things that we really have to sort of get the word out there that if you start to feel that way or think that way, recognize that your brain is not working right and you need some help. Absolutely. This was something that I learned um, in therapy as well. You know, my therapist said about 90% of your thoughts aren't true. Mm -hmm. And that was really hard to internalize. But, you know, having gone through that and having, you know, the doctors who take care of me and, and, and working at this, um, it is true. And you have to, you have to teach your brain to learn that and to recognize it. And mm-hmm. it's a hard thing, especially when you're in the middle of a, you know, a depression spiral or, or something else bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but just, you know, I mean, just opening up that idea to people, I think is another really important thing that we need to do. Mm-hmm. And For Brene sure. Brown does a great job of interpreting it as the stories we tell ourselves mm-hmm. and, and the lies we tell ourselves. And it's, it's funny how it can just compact a situation because I'm thinking, say, Catherine is thinking I'm a terrible person and we're in this, this isn't going anywhere type thing. And that's probably never even crossed her mind, but right. that's the story my mind is telling me in that situation. And it's sometimes we have to take a step back and a deep breath and realize it, but it's so hard in that instance to, to let go of, of that anxiety and that those lies that are true for us in that moment. Absolutely. And I think the other thing that we have to learn is to be kind with ourselves and to take care of ourselves. Someone told me when I think I was in high school, I think it was a teacher actually said something that was stuck with me the rest of my life. And that is every waking minute of every day of the rest of your life, you are the one and only person you will always be with. So you might as well be someone who's easy to be with. And I can't tell you how many folks with depression and anxiety are real jerks to themselves. Oh, yeah. I mean, and we all do this a little bit, but you know, and I listen to the way that they interact with themselves and the way that they talk to themselves. And I think I would be depressed if I had a jerk constantly following me around, treating me like that, mm-hmm. you know? And so we have to learn also how we, what are our inner voices like? How do we talk to ourselves? Um, we're often much better at interacting with other people and taking care of other people than we are at interacting with and taking care of ourselves. Um, and so I think that's the other, that's the other piece of this whole healing process is being able to recognize how you interact and you can become the kind of person that you would like to wake up to every day for the rest of your life. It takes work, but you can definitely do it. Yeah. And I, I love that too. The whole, you know, if, if I had someone following me around being a jerk, I would be depressed also. <laughs> yeah. And anxious, right? I mean, when your brain is telling you this is like something terrible is going to happen. Oh my God, you're going to die. You know, like if you had someone telling you that constantly, you would, you know, you would not be able to sleep. 
you would not be able to relax. You would have tight muscles. You would not be able to eat or you would eat way too much thinking the end of the world is coming. I might as well fill up before it gets here, you know? Um, so I think those are, those are really important pieces as well. But we do have to remember, remember the biological piece. So there really is a biological piece of this. Well, the thinking itself is a biological piece, actually. I mean, that's another, some interesting studies have been done looking at, um, talk therapy and the way that talk therapy can actually change the biochemistry of your brain in some, some ways similarly to how the medications can. So they really do work synergistically. Um, and that's, you know, I think that's the trouble when you're in a rural area, often you don't have access to the kind of treatment that you need to get a team around you to really help you figure out why your brain is doing the things that it's doing, why it's not working, what the biochemistry is doing, and what you can do to help with that. Nora, you keep bringing up um, the team behind, um, you know, getting going through the healing process or the team you need to surround yourself. And we've kind of been throwing out, you know, psychiatrists, psychologists, therapists, the general practitioner. Can you kind of just walk us through what somebody's team should look like? And should everybody have a team or just people going through depression and anxiety? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, so let's kind of just take a big step back and start from the very beginning and just name the different players. So um, a general practitioner is, is a MD or DO, is a medical person who's been trained in general medicine. And as part of their training in general medicine, often, especially if they're in rural areas because they see so much in mental health, they have some training in mental health, a basic sort of introduction to various treatment strategies for some of the uh, more straightforward mental health problems. But typically, if they get into really significant mental health problems like people with depression that's not responding to treatment or people with psychotic, so people with illnesses where their brain um, has them hearing things or seeing things that aren't there, that kind of thing, then they typically refer to a psychiatrist. A psychiatrist is also an MD or a DO. They have gone through medical school, gone through residency, but after their first year of general residency, they subspecialize in only treating neurological illnesses and illnesses that affect the way people think and feel. So the first year of residency, we do four years of residency in psychiatry. Um, a family practitioner would do three years of residency. The three years of residency for family practice would be, very, would be generalized, talking about taking care of the whole person from birth to the end of their life. Or if they're an internist or pediatrician, they might subspecialize in an age group but they look at all of the physical issues that affect the whole body. Whereas a psychiatrist is trained to look specifically at um, illnesses that affect the way people think and feel. Psychiatrists can prescribe medications um, because they're you know, physicians just like uh, an internist or general practitioner would. Psychologists typically are PhDs, so they've done four or five years of specialized training. And if they are clinical psycho psychologists, they've done specialized training in understanding how people learn, how brains work generally, typically not as much of the biochemistry of brains, although some psychologists do study that and do specialize in that. They look at how to test and how to treat with talk therapy. So they look at the different modalities of training people to think differently, and they have an understanding of how, how mental illnesses present themselves, how to diagnose them, how to categorize them. Psychologists are not prescribers because they're not medical doctors, so they don't have training in prescribing. Psychiatrists, medical doctors, they have training in prescribing and typically also have a good bit of training in psychotherapy as well. So they kind of look at the broad gamut of how to treat mental illness, everything from talk therapy to medication management and the combination of the two. 
Then you have, so therapist, therapist is a general word for someone who does talk therapy. So someone who understands how to train people to think differently, how to train people to recognize um, what's contributing to their symptoms and to change that. And they can have a degree in clinical social work, um, which is often a master's level, but also there's a bachelor's level with some further training, quite a bit of further training afterwards and supervised um, uh, talk therapy. They can be a psychologist, so a PhD level person who is not a medical doctor, but who understands how people think and how people learn and how to, how to train them differently. Or some psychiatrists also can be therapists as well. So they do the talk therapy piece and the medication management piece together. Typically, if you're in a rural area, actually, I should mention one more thing. You can also have PAs and nurse practitioners who specialize in mental health, and they would have a similar training to a, you know, a, a PA or to a nurse practitioner, but then they go on and have um, some specialized training. So within the gamut of specialized training, psychiatrists and psychologists typically have the longest period of training, PhD level, uh, MD level, um, and um, Typically, uh, general practitioners and folks that are in like a typical general medical office have a good bit of understanding how to recognize and diagnose uh, mental illness, can do some treatment, but then typically refer on if what they're doing isn't working well or the patient's not getting better or they have a complication that a, that a general practitioner may not be comfortable or, or used to treating. So those are, that's kind of the field. So when you go in, typically often in a rural area because there are so few resources, often you're going in and talking to a um, general practitioner level, um, like family doctor, if you're having trouble. They may refer you to a therapist and the therapist may have a background in clinical social work, a background in psychology, or could be an MD if they're also gonna prescribe medications. So the reason I, I say team is that Often the way it's set up, and this has as much to do with insurance reimbursement as anything else, is that the psychiatrist is mostly managing the medications and the therapist working closely with the psychiatrist is mostly managing the therapy piece. Um, although there are, there are, you know, you can see mixtures of that, but I think it's important to have um, a group, if you're working with more than one person, have them all talking together, having them all putting their expertise together because they each bring their own perspective on how these illnesses can be approached and how they can be treated. So the reason I say team is because I think ideally you would have a medical doctor with some training in mental health for entry-level type general anxiety, general depression, and once if it's getting, if it's severe, if it's not getting better, then you would step that up to a psychiatrist combined either who does therapy and so then you can see one person or a psychiatrist working with a therapist and they would work together as a team. Does that answer your question? Yeah, and I think it's I think it's important too that you you broke all that down and described it as a team because oftentimes I feel like we we don't want to share what's going on. So sometimes we just piece everything together. And so like like holding our, our team accountable to communicating with each other it's okay to even fire a member of our team if they're not working for us or just jiving with us. It doesn't mean they're not good yeah. at their job, but it, they might just not be jiving with the situation and the problem I'm facing right now. And I think Absolutely. a lot of people get scared to fire their team members. Well, and I think, you know, it's, so I think it's sort of like finding a really good coach. There's a variety of different coaches, all of whom, do really well with some groups of people, but not every coach is right for every person. And I would say a good 
mental health practitioner ought to be very open to talking with you about this isn't working well for me. I don't feel like I'm getting better or I feel like you're not hearing me or I feel like I need a second opinion. And a good, well-trained mental health pr practitioner should be very comfortable having that conversation because we understand that we all are a little bit different and our approaches are a little bit different and you need to find somebody that you really trust and that you, because if you're going to have someone starting to help you recognize when your brain is telling you something that isn't true, you better be able to trust that person because you don't want them telling you something that isn't true as well. So I think getting to know, you know, and I think that's like when you're looking for a therapist to look through on their website, get a sense of them, talk to them. And even sometimes people will do sort of a trial. So, you know, try it out, go for three or four weeks, see how it goes. See if you feel like, like, like it's meshing well, see if it's helpful or not. Um, and keep looking. If you don't find somebody who's the right fit or you don't feel like the particular physician, if you decide that, you know, that your particular illness needs treatment with medication, if they're not listening to you, if they're not communicating with the team, look again or talk to them and say, hey, I'm getting this sense from you. Um, what do you think? And they should be very professional in the way that they approach that. If they're not, then that might be a more indication that you need to find someone who's a little bit easier to work with. Absolutely. Um, I I had my first experience with firing a member of my mental health team last fall and it was horrible. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's a hard thing to do, but I'm getting much better care now. And, um, you know, I think sort of just one of those things you have to walk through and learn how to do it. But um, important for people to know mm -hmm. very much so that if you aren't jiving with somebody, um, keep looking because the help is there. Sometimes it just takes some searching. It does take some searching and the resources are not as available in rural areas as they are elsewhere. Um, one of the really good things, I mean, the, there's many terrible things that have come out of the COVID-19 epidemic or pandemic, but I think one of the good things that has come out of it is that telehealth is becoming a bigger and bigger field. And it's more and more possible to shop around and find somebody really good who may not be in your town or sometimes even in your state. Um, we're working on getting some of the laws fixed so that you can practice across straight state lines and things like that. But if you are living in say rural Colorado, especially now, there may be providers that are really good that are not in rural Colorado or that are not close enough to drive to who historically you haven't been able to access that are now getting more and more comfortable with doing telehealth. Um, there's some issue with connectivity and making sure everybody has internet access and things like that in rural areas. But by all means, you want to keep looking until you find a good team. And the advice that I would give is you want a team that treats you as an equal, that is there to help you bring you the expertise that they have, but not to make decisions on your behalf. Mm -hmm. So I really, and when I say team, I include the person who's getting treatment in that description as well, that you are an equal, if not greater member of understanding, making decisions. So if you're going to get treatment, I understand the fear of somebody's going to just shove pills down my throat or something like that. And I totally agree with you. Nobody should be doing that. And I think a good, well-trained practitioner is going to find out what your priorities are, what your comfort level with things are, and their job is to help educate you. So for example, if I'm prescribing something to someone, I want to make sure they understand what they're taking, why they're taking it, how long they should be on it, what the side effects might be, mm -hmm. what the benefits of taking it and of not taking it would be. Um, all of those things, if you're not getting that level of interaction and that level of information, then it's a, a good reason perhaps to look around and see if you can find someone else who works a little bit better with you. I think this leads kind of into resources too. And if somebody's listening today, right before we wrap up, um, 
and, and realizes that they need help, Nora, what's the best way to start assembling the team, but also immediate resources right now? (laughs) Absolutely. And so I think we should add to that. If there's someone, you know, or love that you think looks like things aren't going well for them. Mm -hmm. I think one of the biggest, I mean, just to circle back to stigma for just a minute before we cover the resources, if I can, um, is that it does not cause mental illness to ask about mental illness. And this is specifically Mm -hmm. true of suicide. You will never say to someone, I'm worried about you. Are you, have you ever thought about taking your own life? Have you ever thought that life is not worth living? That will not introduce something they haven't thought of if they are not suicidal. It just won't. And all the data backs me up on that. So the, if you know someone or you care about someone, ask them. Do it gently, do it kindly, but say, I'm worried about you. I love you. I want, you are extremely important to me. Have you ever thought about suicide? I can see that you're struggling. Can, is there something I can do to help you get some get connected, some help? I would say the first place to start would certainly be talking to your doctor, especially if you have a doctor that you know in your local community that you trust. That would be a great place to start. Often you can, um, so if you're talking about a really severe issue, like you know suicidal thoughts, you can, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline is a great resource. Um, there are, and we can post them maybe in the show notes afterwards, but there are a number of places to go where if you're looking for a therapist or you're looking for a psychiatrist, you can start there. Um, but typically talking with your, with your doctor or, you know, if you're say a high school kid and you're in school, talk with your school counselor, they would know what the resources, what the resources are in the, in the area. Um, and a lot of times you can refer yourself if it's a therapist and typically, you know, you can just say, Hey, here's what's going on. What do you think I want? I want to get an opinion and you could just, you know, Google or look online resources for local therapists, usually if they're credentialed. So you want to look, do they, you know, if you're working with a psychiatrist, are they board certified? If you're working with a uh, clinical social worker, are they licensed? Um, Those kinds of things are good things to start with when you're looking for someone. American Psychological Association has resources. I'm sure that um, there's uh, associations for clinical uh, psychologists that have resources for clinical social workers that have resources. Also universities, we have a number of great universities in Colorado, and that's true, I think, in in, uh, rural areas have state universities and things like that. You can always call uh, the university and say, hey, I'm looking for resources for uh, myself or a friend who's having some mental health problems. Can you point me in the right direction? Absolutely. And I think an important thing to know about resources too is that, I mean, back to the stigma thing, you know, if, if people have a hard time asking because they're afraid they're going to be judged or whatever, um, you know, that, that hasn't been my experience. Once you ask for help, people are so very willing to give it. Um, so getting over that first hurdle is, is an important step to recovery for sure. Talk about something that your brain tells you that isn't true. You know, I mean, I can't, I mean, I have literally seen patients in practice who were somehow affiliated with each other, like partners, business partners or something like that, where one is telling me if my business partner ever knew I was seeing you, they would disown me. They would never want to talk to me again. And I'm thinking, well, I better make sure that your business partner doesn't schedule their appointment for too close to yours. You know what I mean? I literally have been in that position. And so typically, if someone is judging you for, for coming out and getting help, or that says more about them than it says about you. Absolutely. And I would also say that, yeah, 
And I think that's just, that is just because this is so common, I think you're more likely to bump into somebody who's either experienced it themselves or has a loved one who has. Mm -hmm. And likely predisposed to be very sympathetic and helpful in, in helping you find care. I would think so. I would think so for sure. I think we have to encourage each other, really have to fill each other with courage to come out and, and, and tell, sto tell our stories. Because I, you know, I, I do um, get curbsided a lot by people <laughs> in rural areas, even though they're not my actual current patient population, sort of saying, here's what's going on, you know, what, what do I do? Um, and I wish that all of those folks didn't feel like they had to be so embarrassed or so private. That you know, I it it is so common. It is so common that um, you know we all have to step forward and say, "Hey, this is this is something that's going on for me, um, and we need to get the treatment that we can get so we can go on and live our lives." Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I think that's a fantastic place to um, pause. Uh, listeners, we will have um, Nora's resources in our show notes and on our website. We're working on building a page on our website um, d dedicated to uh, mental health access and care. Um, and and Nora, we cannot thank you enough for coming on. We so appreciate your perspective and your expertise um, and are just really glad of the value that you've been able to bring to our show and helping us open up this can of worms um, and try to normalize this topic a little bit. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was really a privilege. Yeah. And I, my brain's already running on 10 more questions I have for you, but we'll, we'll save that for another episode and can't wait to have you back. Sounds great. Thanks. Take care. Mm -hmm.